0: I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed working through this Our Story, His Story series this year. Looking at, big, looking at the big picture of God's story. What has He done in the past? What is He doing right now? What is He going to do in the future? We're going to finish up the series here in the month of December. However, today we are coming out of that series for one Sunday to begin the series that we're going to work through starting in January. 2020 Vision is the the title for the series, and I come to you today with this message because I believe it's timely. It's It's time for me to come to you with this, and you'll understand more here in a few moments. Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, most of us know the story of Nehemiah. He is an exile from the nation of Israel. He was taken away um, when uh, Israel was overtaken. Now he is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He receives a visit from his brother and some other men from Judah, and these men bring some bad news to him. The wall around Jerusalem is lying in ruins, and there are no gates to protect the inhabitants of the city. The people who are there in Jerusalem are in great trouble. That's the words that's used there in verse 3. They're in great trouble. Not only are they in great trouble, but we also find they are in great shame because of what has taken place. Things are not as they should be. Jerusalem was once uh, one of the strongest cities in all the world, and it's now lying down in ruins. The gates are. In Solomon's day, Jerusalem was considered the most beautiful city in all of the world. And now there is none of that same beauty. The city of Jerusalem had some problems, had some major problems. The people in it had major problems. Now, if you're a guest here this morning, then I want to thank you for joining us for worship. I'm glad that you're here. But I want to give you a little bit of a disclaimer right here at the beginning. Today is a little bit of a different Sunday, different sermon than what we typically have here at Salem. If you are a a member or you are a regular attender, then um, listen, my goal for today is to call us to action by first hearing some difficult news, some some difficult things. But then um, after that, there's going to be a call to prayer, a very specific prayer. Specifically today, I'm going to talk through some of what our strategic planning team has found over the year 2019. They've been working hard for this year. And I believe it's time for us to come to you and share here are some of our findings. I wanna begin though, before we jump into that report, I wanna begin with a question. And here's the question. What is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? And you have a bulletin, and on the back of your bulletin is plenty of space for taking notes. I want to encourage you to go ahead and pull that thing out, pull out a pencil if you need to, and at the top of the page, write this question, what is the mission of the church? I believe the mission of the church is laid out for us in the Great Commission. Before Jesus left this earth, after his death and after his resurrection, he told his disciples, he gave them a commission. He said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, So you ask that question of what is the mission of the church, and the answer is to make disciples. That is the mission of the church as a whole. Make disciples. Everything we do should be done to fulfill that mission of making disciples. I want to encourage you to write down that response. You got the question up there, what's the mission of the church? Write down to make disciples. To make disciples. As Christians and as a local church, we have an important assignment that we are to carry out. That assignment is to make disciples. And that's what we should keep in front of our minds constantly. Always. That's what should stay in the forefront of our minds. One year ago, we commissioned as a church a strategic planning committee to take an in-depth look at our church. And that group has worked faithfully all throughout 2019 To fulfill their purpose of taking an honest look at our church. And there was some problems that we knew existed before um, we commissioned this, but it wasn't until we really started digging through um, that we really became aware truly of of what was going on. And and I want to walk you through four of our biggest problems today, okay? Now, before I do that, I'm going to share with you four things that you need to know before we get started, all right? Number one, As far as we know, and as far as we've found, there is no evidence whatsoever of of anything illegal or immoral in our church. Um, And I I say that because there's going to be some of you who are thinking, okay, is there anything behind the scenes, illegal, immoral, whatever, that we need to know about? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, Salem has been transparent and above board in absolutely everything. Okay, secondly, we are not going to play the blame game, period. Period. as we talk about some of this, it's going to be easy for some of you, especially maybe people who've been here for a long time, to think, OK, well, that generation is at fault here, or that younger generation is at fault, or that group of people or that specific purpose, person. And that's not the case at all. We are not going to play the blame game, period, in any of this. Um, we are where we are, and there's no denying or changing reality at this point. It's time to move on from what we're going to talk about today. Thirdly, I'm not here to offer solutions. All of that is going to come in January. I am here for the purpose today of, of sharing a State of Salem address, if you will. It's partly from the book of Nehemiah, using that as a guide for us, because we see a very clear guide on how we are to respond when difficult times come along. But I'm here today to share with you, hey, here is, here's where we're at. I'm coming to you, God's people. Hey, we need to pray about this. We need to pray together. I got a question uh, from a couple of people this week. Okay, well, Why are you doing this on Sunday morning, rather than a member meeting on a Wednesday night. And here's why. Because I believe in absolute transparency. And you are are our church. We, We come together in this place on Sunday morning, and I want to be able to share with you so that we together as a church can come together and pray together about what we're going to talk about here in just a couple of moments. I'm going to come back to you at the beginning of January with a recommendation from the Strategic Planning Committee, and I'll talk more about that in a few moments. But here's the fourth thing before we jump into this. We need to make sure we keep an open mind and a humble heart as we process through this information, okay? Our desire should be for Jesus to lead and sustain, not our church, but his church in all things. That should be our goal, should be our prayer, that should be our desire that he leads his church. We can only do that when we approach this with humility, just like the city of Jerusalem, these men came to Nehemiah and they said, hey, we've got some problems. Just like the city of Jerusalem, church, Salem has some problems. How many of you thought Salem was a perfect church? Keep your hand down because there is no perfect church. If there was such thing as a perfect church, then you would come to it and all of a sudden it wouldn't be a perfect church anymore. <laughs> That's right, I gotta aim in there. I'm gonna share with you four of our biggest problems, okay? Number one, attendance. Number one, attendance. If you look around the auditorium right now, um, then, uh, especially if you're up there in the balcony, you look up there and you look down and you think, man, I wonder if this place has ever been filled. The answer is yes. There was a time in which it was filled. Some of you remember the days um, of, of 1,200 people almost in attendance here in this place. It was back during the 60s. And before that even, early into the 70s, Salem was packed back then. In fact, this auditorium was built, the one we're sitting in right now, was built in 1975. And, and there would have been pews all the way back to the walls. Some of you remember that. There was pews that came all the way up here close to the stage. In fact, um, if those pews were still there and I was pastor, then there would be danger of, um, of you getting wet down here in the front. I tend to spit just a little bit when I preach, but this place was packed back then during that time. However, over time, attendance has declined for our church. There's a graph that you're going to see here on your screen, and, and um, that's, that's the, over on the left side you see the number of people, down at the bottom you see the, the decades. It starts with the 60s, and it goes by decades all the way till you get to 2000. And then in 2000, it begins going by five-year increments. Well, back in in 1960-ish, there was an average of about 1,200 people that attended church here. Over time, that number has declined to where right now in 2019, we have an average attendance of about 272 people. That's what we've got here in 2019. That's 1,000 people less than 50 years ago. With the change in attendance comes changes in our giving structure. According to national averages, Salem is an incredibly giving church. You go above and beyond to help sustain this church. And to my knowledge, there has never been a time in which our missionaries have failed to receive a support check. Um, our, Our payroll is always met. Our utilities bill is always paid. We are never behind in that. However, common sense says that the giving dynamics of our church are going to continue to change in part because of the makeup of our congregation. It's going to continue to change in the years to come. Some of our members who have traditionally given heavily throughout the years are getting older, and they are not going to be here forever to continue giving the way they are now. As I think about attendance, I can't help but think about where our church members live as well. In the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the vast majority of people could have walked to Salem Baptist Church because they lived right here in this West Salem area of the neighborhood. Um, This was very much a community church at that time. Well, Salem's not so much a community church anymore as it is a regional church. There's nothing wrong with that, but most of our members drive at least seven miles to come to church, many of them much further to come in. We've got a church management software that outlines for us on a map where our church members and church regular attenders live. And um, if you were to look at there's a a first map up here. If you were to look at that map, that's the area immediately around our church. In fact, anyone who lives within a one-mile radius of Salem is on there with a red dot. You can see this is the number of people who live in the West Salem neighborhood. If you were to look back in the 50s, 60s, that area would have been covered in red because most people lived right here around our church. However, we move out to a regional view of that map, and you see, this is where our church members and regular attenders live now. Salem Baptist Church is right there in the center. You can kind of see the 52 comes up and you got 40 there, business 40 coming around the top side. Um, you can see that our church is very much a regional church now. Once again, there's nothing wrong with that. God does use a regional church just like he uses a community church. But there's been a, a change in, in dynamic there over the years. This last fact is the fact that I share with you here about the, with the maps is, is not necessarily a problem as much as it is something that helps inform us about the dynamics of where our church members live. So the first problem that I share with you is our attendance, okay? Over the years, it has declined steadily. Here's the next problem. It's an inward trending behavior, an inward trending behavior. One of the great difficulties that tends to plague legacy churches such as Salem is that the church and its members become inward focused. An inward focused church is one that is more concerned with their own needs and their own wants over the needs of the community. This mindset um, is honestly not always real easy to identify when it's taking place. It's actually kind of hard to identify a church that's becoming inward focused. However, a church should always be marked by first-generation type faith rather than second-generation type faith. We remember back at the beginning of this year and working through this Our Story, His Story series, we were looking at Abraham and the first-generation type faith that Abraham had. But then came subsequent generations in which the, 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 the behavior became that of a second-generation believer. Um, you, look at the, uh, you look at this graph and on the left side you see this is, what, this is characteristics of a first-generation church. On the right is characteristics of a second-generation type church. A first-generation type church does whatever it takes. Second-generation does only what I'm asked to do. First-generation assumes personal responsibility. Second-generation assumes someone else will do it. First-generation expects personal sacrifice. Second-generation expects personal comfort. First-generation sees problems and seeks solutions Second generation sees problems and complains. First generation sees possibilities and dreams about what could be. Second generation sees barriers and reasons to quit. First generation hears the voice of God firsthand and they own the vision. Second generation inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision. First generation steps out with bold, reckless trust in God. Second generation sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. First generation fears holding anything back from God. Whatever God wants to do, we need to allow Him to do it. Second generation fears commitment. First generation feels privileged to be a part of the movement. Second generation feels entitled to the benefits of the institution. Anytime a church transitions from a first generation to second generation faith, Drastic changes must be taken to correct the sinful, hear that, sinful direction that the church has begun heading. And I use that term sinful direction because at no point does God ever, ever call anyone to second generation type faith. He never does that. In fact, he always, always calls his followers to bold, audacious faith in what he can do. A church is in sin when it resorts to second-generation faith. A church is in sin when it resorts to second-generation faith. A church is called to make disciples. The disciples cannot be made the way God intended for disciples to be made when a church is inward-focused. An inward-focused church is clearly seen in the second-generation faith characteristics that you see up there on the screen on that right side. Tom Rainer um, wrote a book several years ago entitled Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And in that book, um, he gives some characteristics to an inward-focused church. Here's the characteristics that he gives. He says, an inward-focused church uh, in in that there is a slow erosion of numbers over time. There's an unhealthy focus on the past. There's a refusal slash failure to look like the community There's a budget shift from ministry to maintenance slash inward-focused programs. The Great Commission is ignored. Preferences dominate decisions. There's a failure to pray together. There's no clear purpose for the church. There's an obsession over facilities. Now, I'll look at a list such as that, and I I think, okay, well, there's some factors here that are stronger than others that are absolutely a part of our church. Others that, yeah, I, I believe in many ways we do have a praying culture about our church. We meet often for prayer, But even in that, I think, okay, well, what kind of prayer are we exhibiting here? Is it a bold, audacious prayer in in what God can do? Or is it just a, you know what, I'm going to get together and I'm going to pray with my fellow believers for the needs that I have on a daily basis. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with that. But when our prayer is solely hinged on the daily needs that we have, rather than the faith in what God can do, that's when there becomes a problem. I continue to look at this list and I realize, you know what, there's some components here that are strong with our church. There's others that, that you know what, that's a part of our church, but maybe it's not so strong. But folks, it can be easily argued, easily argued, that there has been a gradual behavioral shift inward in the past several decades of Salem, of Salem Baptist Church. It wasn't long ago that I read the biography of Dr. Charles Stevens and he was pastor here back during the, he came in 20s. He was here 30s, 40s, 50s, up through the part of the 60s. He was here during the great growth of Salem Baptist Church. People were coming to Christ in droves, being baptized. Some of you may remember this, many many people being baptized at a time. He was here during that that time. And, And one of the things that, I was captured by as I read that biography is that he was a man who led his church to be outward focused in everything they did but then as I look back on the history of our church and even as I read minutes from meetings from those years I saw a shift begin to take place in the language and the culture of the church somewhere along the way Salem went from talking a whole lot about reaching people to talking more about how to preserve Salem Baptist Church. The reality is that Salem has been in a place in which the preservation of the institution has become become more important than the making of disciples. And when inward behavior is a component of a church culture, drastic measures have got to be taken to break that culture. Conviction of that sin is vital. Repentance is necessary. Measures have got to be put in place to where mission drift doesn't take place anymore in the future. You know what mission drift is? It's when here's the mission. Oh, but all of a sudden we drift with the current away from the mission. That's mission drift. I want to add a side note to this this point, uh, and and it's this. I'm encouraged by the pockets of repentance that I see taking place within Salem for this inward focus. More and more, I see people who long for first-generation type faith. And I believe that God has primed our church for this moment so we can step out in first-generation type faith and see Him accomplish the impossible. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Here's our next problem. It's the footprint of our property. The footprint of our property. There's several facets to this, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but the first facet I want to talk about is the parking. Uh, Our parking and its limitations are a major problem. Uh, In fact, if we didn't have Piedmont's parking lot right across the street over here, then we would be in a world of trouble. Several weeks ago, when we were in this room worshiping together, there was someone else who was outside counting cars and counting available parking spots. And uh, if we didn't have Piedmont's parking lot across the street, which we're in no danger of losing that. Let me be, cl- be clear about that. But, but it's a factor that we think about. If we didn't have that, then we would have only had 15 empty spots on our property for us to park in. Um, and, and that's a problem. Because if we are praying for God to do a mighty work through our church, but yet we're limited in such an area such as parking, then, uh, then we've got a problem. Also, think about the ease of access to our campus. Some of you have been attending Salem for years, and you know that with the closure of the Business 40 ramps, um, it's a little more difficult to get here. And there's, there's less traffic that's traveling right here on Broad Street. There's less exposure to our church. Also, in talking about the footprint of our property, we have a Christian school that is thriving However, they are capped, in essence, they are capped right now where they're at because they just don't have the facilities to do anymore. They can't grow anymore because of a lack of space. We have seven acres here on our immediate property. We have just over 150,000 square foot of interior space, but that space is not utilized well just because of the way that it was built and because of the way that it's all laid out. And really, that leads me to my fourth biggest problem that I want to talk about here today, and this is a big one, and that is maintenance, problem of maintenance. The oldest building on our property is 100 years old. It's the Fellowship Hall building. In fact, next year, 2020, it's going to be 100 years old. Maybe we should have a birthday party for it. You want to? Um, The newest building is 44 years old, and that's the auditorium that we're sitting in right now. It's built in 1975. We recently commissioned a study through a consulting firm that assesses church property and they submitted back to us a report and that report painted a bleak picture when it comes to the condition of our facilities. Salem has a deferred maintenance cost right now of $2.5 million. Deferred maintenance is anything that Is is, is work that should have been done in the past but hasn't been done for a number of reasons. Now, much of the blame for that number rests on the reality that our attendance and our giving dynamics have changed over the years. And we've been unable to pay for personnel. We've been unable to pay for the resources that we need, the materials to do the work. Our facilities are not getting any smaller at all. Um, And they're only getting older. So now we find ourselves with big problems. We've got HVAC systems, roofs, flooring, paint, exterior and interior structure remodeling, and many more things that we've been neglecting over the years, and now they are in dismal shape. Uh, at any point, there's a variety of HVAC systems that could go out, leaving us with a bill of $40,000 just to make sure there's heat and air in areas that are, are, that are well used, that are used on a regular basis. With a bill that size, we would need to raise money in order to pay for it. This is only talking about one unit, though. And there's another 23 units that will inevitably have to be replaced in the next several years. Um, Not all of them are that expensive. Not all of them are $40,000. Some of them are much more expensive. In fact, we've got one unit on our campus here that is over 30 years old. And to replace that unit is going to be upwards to $150,000 for us to replace that unit. Folks, we don't have the money for that. We would have to raise money in order to replace those units. That's only talking about the HVAC cost. Nearly every roof on this property is leaking. In fact, um, we've, we've replaced a couple of roofs over the last several years, but if it was raining hard outside right now, like it has been the last day or so, then we have to watch out and see if there's buckets that we need to put out in the foyer or in the gym building or the Lawrence building, the Tucker building to catch water. Uh, several several weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, I was walking through the foyer, and it was it was raining cats and dogs outside. Um, that's the term my grandmother used. I don't typically use that, but raining cats and dogs outside. And as I walked through the foyer, I looked over at the wall, and there's water running down the wall. I think I have a picture. Yeah, I do. I have a picture of this, and it's kind of hard to see, but there's an area right there in the center of the the brick wall in which there was water just just running down the wall. Now, that's not as simple as just replacing a roof. That's actually a much bigger problem that we've got over here on the front side of our church. Um, It's an example for you, though, of, of a major problem that we've got. Our maintenance staff, when it rains hard, they have to keep a lookout to make sure the teen room, the cafeteria, doesn't flood. And if it does flood, then they spend hours shop-vacking water out of those rooms. Everywhere you look, there's work that's gotta be done. We've got on file hundreds of pictures of areas that need work, and I'm not gonna show all those to you now, but everything from pressure washing to replacing windows to painting to repaving parking lots is all examples of the work that has got to be done. The news only gets worse, worse when you look at the budgeted maintenance for our church. In the study presented by the company that we hired to help us, here were some of their findings. Okay, what you've got here is on the left side, you've got the main categories. Okay? you get got the national benchmark. And by the way, this national benchmark is the low. I'm not even talking about the national benchmark high of what people should be, should be setting aside. Then on the right side, you've got Salem and what we're actually giving. Under maintenance, we should be putting aside $2.25 per square foot for maintenance. However, right now we're putting aside in our budget $1.08 per square foot. Under cleaning, we should be putting aside $1.50 per square foot. But right now we're putting aside $0.75 per square foot. Then you look at capital reserve, and this is anything that, that this is money that we set aside saying we have this major project we know we're going to have to complete in the future, so we're setting aside money right now to be able to do it. We should be setting aside $1 per square foot. In reality, right now, we're putting aside $0.08 cent per square foot. It's a big difference there, isn't it? This tells me that we're not providing our maintenance team with the resources they need to adequately care for our facilities. We currently spend 43% of our budget on maintenance. We've been told by this firm that helped us out that we should be spending at minimum, no less than 53% of our budget on maintenance. But get this, that number that you see there, the 53%, is only after we spend the $2.5 million in deferred maintenance. That means that if we're to continue on the track that we're on right now, the 53 cent of every dollar given by you goes to maintaining facilities that don't even work the way we need for them to work to, to, to fit our needs. We're not giving that money for outreach into the community. We're not given that money for global missions. We're not given that money for the building of our our church's programs and ministries. Studies show us that when a church moves past 25% of their budget being spent on maintenance, then there is danger of that church moving toward death. We're currently at 43%. We should be spending more than that to maintain these old facilities. Church, we are choosing maintenance over ministry, and it is not sustainable. To boil it all down, I'll say it that way. We are choosing maintenance over ministry, and it is not sustainable. We can't keep going the way we are right now. We can't do it. If we don't do something, then we're going to die. There is no question at all about it. To my knowledge, no study like this has been done before at Salem, and um, we had no idea until we really started digging the, the, the depth of, of truly where we're at. Where we are and, and is, is where we are, and there's no getting around that. There's no changing it. The only thing that we can affect right now is how we choose to respond moving forward. That's it. As I told you before, I am not here today to offer solutions. In January, um, the first Sunday in January, the Strategic Planning Committee is going to have a recommendation ready to be presented to the church. We've been in conversations already with the deacons and the trustees about all of this, and they're going to be a heavy part of the conversation as we move forward. But for today, what should our response be? To this information that I've just given and and, and kind of a a state of, a little bit of a state of where we're at, what should our response be? Go to Nehemiah chapter 1 again. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 4. We're going to see how Nehemiah responds to the news about the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So, how do we respond? How do we respond? Three things. Number one, we don't forget who's on the throne. We don't forget who's on the throne. Here's what Nehemiah said, Oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah knew who was in charge. He knew who was in charge and he never took his eyes off of his God. Church, Jesus has been faithful to sustain his church for 2,000 years. He has been faithful to sustain this church for 110 years. And there is no reason whatsoever to think that he will not continue to do so. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you know it or not, but I'm not on the throne. And I don't know if you know it or not, but you're not on the throne. You are not in charge. I am not in charge. But we know the God who is in charge. And so we never, ever, ever forget Who's on the throne? Number two, we pour out our hearts before our God. We pour out our hearts before our God. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. His heart is broken about what's happening, but he takes his brokenness to God. In Nehemiah's prayer, we see really three different components to this prayer. First of all, you see a repentance. First of all, we actually saw that there was this recognition, okay? God is on the throne. But then we see this repentance. Nehemiah repents for his nation's sin. Hear my prayer, in essence, he says. "Continue on verse six. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah comes to God and he says, God, I'm sorry for what not only I have done, I'm sorry for what my people have done. I'm sorry for the ways that we just completely ignored what you had to say. God, I'm sorry. Church, a part of pouring out our heart before God has got to be a prayer of repentance. God, I'm sorry for the ways we have not been faithful with your mission. You say, well, I wasn't here then. Nehemiah wasn't there then. But do you see him Stopping his prayer of repentance. I wasn't there then. I wasn't a part of this. No. He pours out his heart. God, please forgive us for this. So there's that prayer of repentance. There's also a prayer of reminding. Nehemiah reminds God of his promises. God, you said, I know you said that if if we sin against you, you're going to scatter us all over the world. But God, you also said that if we return to your name, that you're going to pull us together again, and your name will be made great as a result of it. That's what Nehemiah prays. Church, of prayer like that for, for us could be, God, I want to remind you of your promises. You promised to sustain your church. You promised that any time we leave you or walk away from you, that we are welcomed back. God, you promised to save people through your church. There's a reminding God, God, I know this is your promises. I'm reminding you of your promises. I'm sorry for what we've done, but I'm reminding you that you are God above all else and that you will bring us back. There's not only the repentance and the reminder, but there's the request. Okay, God, here's my request. I need this. Hear my prayer, oh God. Grant me success, oh God. Give me mercy, God. Help us, is Nehemiah's prayer. Our prayer could be really similar, you know that? God, hear our prayer. Grant us success. Give us mercy. God, help us. Nehemiah poured out his heart before his God, and honestly, our response should be no less. Why would it be? God, we need your help. We need your help. We don't have a lot of money in the bank. We've got money to pay bills. We don't have a lot of money in the bank. God, there's a whole lot you want to do in this city. And we believe you've given us the vision of reaching 1% of the lost population of this city. God, we're claiming your promises. We need your help. It may frustrate you to no end for me to share the state of where we're at as a church today and not include recommendations for how we move forward as a church yet. That may frustrate you to no end. However, one thing I know without a doubt is that God has the most room to work in hearts that are fully yielded to Him. And I believe our church as a whole needs that time to be fully yielded to Him. As a strategic planning committee and even as as deacons, as we talked to the trustees in the last month, we've been in a heavy season of prayer for several months now. In fact, many on our strategic planning team has been fasting periodically. God, we need your help. We need your wisdom. We've been in deep, dependent prayer. And now it's time for our church to join in doing the very same thing. During the month of December, would you commit to pouring out your heart in prayer before God on behalf of our church? Would you commit to doing that? As you leave today, Here in a few moments, you're going to be handed a prayer guide. And it's just a tool to help you walk through this prayer that Nehemiah prayed. This prayer of refocusing, don't forget who's on the throne. This prayer of repentance, God, I'm sorry for my part in this. This prayer of reminding God of his promises to sustain his church. This prayer of, God, we need your help. We know we need your help. On December the 11th, which is a Wednesday night, not this Wednesday, but the next, I want to challenge you to come and we're going to meet in this place and we're going to have a night of prayer specifically for our church. We pour out our hearts before God and say, God, if you're going to do something with this church, you've got to do it because we can't. By the way, there is no greater place to be than in a place in which your hands are empty and you've got nothing and you've got to rely on God to do something. That's where we're at right now, church. And I can't be more excited about us being in this place right now. Because if God's going to work, then he's going to show up and show off. And I'm excited about that. I'm ready to go. Let's go right now. Church, take this and pray. Join myself. Join the leadership of this church in pouring out your heart before God. Then lastly, as we talk about our response and moving forward, I want to say this. You continue serving just like Nehemiah. You continue serving just like Nehemiah. One thing is clear if you continue reading Nehemiah. While he's praying, he does not throw in the towel and quit. He doesn't do it. He stayed faithful to his commitments. He stayed faithful in his role as cupbearer to the king. Satan would like nothing more than to use this time period in our church to pull us apart and to get you and to get me okay with slacking off. I'll just kind of slack off on this one little thing. Cut corners in this one little thing. Folks, God is too great. And we have received way too much grace through the life that we've been given in Jesus for us to respond with anything besides continuing to serve him. Church, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't, start, don't stop serving. Don't stop giving. In fact, if anything, this should fuel in us a longing to see God show up and show off as only he can because we see the trouble that we're in if he doesn't. Let's go. So you come to Journey to Bethlehem. And you serve in Journey to Bethlehem. You invite anybody and everybody that might want to come and people who don't even you think want to come. You invite them to come to Journey to Bethlehem. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you continue writing that lesson for the glory of God. If you're serving in kids ministry, then you continue serving with everything inside of you. Don't quit. You go all in for the mission of the church, and you see the way God responds in the days ahead. I've said many times that I truly believe Salem's greatest days of gospel impact are yet ahead of us. We've had 110 years of ministering in this city, and there is no reason to think that we won't, unless Christ comes back, which I hope he does at some point, that we won't still have another 110 and beyond years to continue ministering in this city. Now, I'm not going to be here 110 years from now, and you're not either. But the decisions we make right now are going to have an effect on whether Salem is here 110 years from right now. What an opportunity. What a time we're living in. Church, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. While this report that I've had to share with you may not sound positive, I do know one thing that is more positive than anything else in this world, that is more encouraging than anything else in this world. And that is that we have a Savior who came to this earth, we're celebrating Him this time of year, Who came to this earth and he lived the life that I was supposed to live. The perfect, sinless life that I was supposed to live. That he died the death I deserved to die for my sin. That he rose from the dead giving me victory over death and sin. And that right now he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father on high. I know that when other things in life may be discouraging or negative... That I know without a doubt that I can look to Him as the author and finisher of my faith. And I know without a doubt that one day I'm gonna see Him and I'm gonna experience Him in all of His glory. Church, in the middle of uncertainty, we keep our eyes on Jesus always. And we keep our eyes on the mission that He has given us always. That we never take our eyes off of those things. In just a moment, we're gonna sing a song entitled Praise the King. There is no better way for us to go from this place in a few moments than to go with a heart that says, I'm going to, in humility, pour out my heart before God on behalf of my church. But I'm going to go remembering who my Savior is. Church, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, what a great God you are. And none of this that I've talked about today takes you by surprise. In fact, you have the opportunity now to show up and show off in a way that, Father, is nothing short of phenomenal. Father, in this time period, this next month, may our hearts be completely yielded to you in humility. So as we as a church process through and as we work through, how do we move forward well? That, Father, our personal preferences and our second generation type faith is not taking precedence over the first generation type, bold, audacious faith that you call us to. Father, we want to reach 1% of this lost population of this city with the gospel. That beautiful gospel that shows us the life that we find in Jesus. Father, show us how we can do that well. We love you, Father. We thank you for loving us and for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen.